listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. One of the biggest mistakes we can make on the spiritual path is to suppose that in order to be uh, awake, in order to incorporate enlightenment into our day-to-day, that we must more or less be kind of cut off from the neck down, that we don't lead lives that are normal, so to speak, but once once we're enlightened, we take on a whole new kind of uh, approach. We have a whole new energetic frequency. We uh, no longer get angry. We no longer have any kind of desire. We are just bliss personified. And I think the trap that this offers each of us along the path is It allows our egos to project what that which is small in us thinks is big. As long as that which is small in us can create an idea of what is infinite and expansive, it can manage it. And as long as the ego can manage anything, awakening uh, isn't available in the same way. It's not readily available, I guess I should say. So one of the things we can do is recognize that, you know, awakening is available to everyone, everyone, no matter what your emotional state, no matter what your situation, no matter what your life presents no matter how horrific things are going, no matter how stressed you might feel, all those states are perfect. All those states are perfect when it comes to letting the divine estate, so to speak, kind of open into us and through us. And we become readily available and awakening becomes readily available to us the minute, as we discussed last week, we can literally welcome the whole show, whatever it happens to be, whatever our state is. Depression, anger, elation, sadness, fear, happiness, love, whatever state we're in, as long as we can welcome it with every bit of our being, really welcome it. Just say to yourself, here we go. Bring it. Bring it. Oh, there's grief. Bring it. When we can occupy that space and we recognize that no matter matter how intense that negative or positive feeling might be, but especially the negative, those are the ones that usually challenge us most. No matter how intense it is, if we can just stay there, recognize it, 
be there with it and explore it fully with not an analytical mind but just an open mind, an open being. The minute we can experience that with total openness, we see that there's something deeper, that all of our negativity tends to come from fear. That somehow we're going to lose something. And then that fear, if you keep going into that a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, what do you see? Each of us starts to see that there is more or less a sadness or a hurt. And we want to forestall this. We want to push it away as best we can. So we run and run and run. And that gives more energy then to the negativity. Instead, when we just stop, we allow ourselves to be in the world, not cut off from the neck down, but totally here in the world, but not co-opted by it. In the world, but not of it, so to speak. When we allow ourselves into this space, we allow ourselves to keep going more deeply and more deeply and more deeply and more deeply. We start seeing that there is nothing there. That there is no final reality to the negativity that we might feel. That there's no final reality to whatever happiness or any temporary state we might feel. There's no final reality to it. What is final is our awareness. And when we give that awareness over we give it up, so to speak, what do we find? We start seeing that all that is good, true, and beautiful starts to resonate within us, and we start to be able to give it away. This is kind of the path of the bodhisattva. This is how today's bodhisattva really can, which is a fancy word for enlightened being, this is how today's enlightened being actually meets the world. And any of us can do this. There's nothing, nothing holding any of us back except fear. That fear can show up subconsciously in all sorts of different ways, but we're afraid of this. We're afraid of the willingness required, the willingness to be a nobody. The willingness to allow any of our stresses our negativity, our pain, whatever it is, to let it dance with us. We're afraid of that, very naturally. That's biological. It's normal to run from that. Okay? Awakening is not normal. <laughs> but it's available freely. So what I'd like you to do tonight as we sit, if you can just have in some corner of your consciousness a willingness, a willingness that is total to just allow whatever is there to be there. No matter how scary it might be, no matter how, just know that the person sitting to your left and the person sitting to your right they're dealing with some relative form of exactly what you're dealing with and every single Buddha Every single Christ, every single awakened sage, all these great men and women throughout history have done exactly this. They have sat there and they've had the courage to welcome it. So I invite you to do that tonight for our little 30 minutes of meditation. 
and then I'm going to walk you through um, a traditional Zen map of uh, awakening. I actually have a handout for everybody tonight. I feel very proud of that. <laughs> as long as you promise not to hang on to it, you know. So I'm just my what I'm scared of is it suddenly it goes up on everybody's refrigerator and they start plotting, you know. Well, I must be here, you know. We'll do that, and then we'll have Q and A following. Bring it. Let it in. We've spent some time talking about how in this practice we don't work to kill our egos. Yet another trap. If we just kill the ego, everything will be fine. If we just kill our small self, then the only thing that's left is the big self. Actually, if you kill your small self, what's left is a small self that thinks it's a big self. So it doesn't really do much good to do that. What we do ask, on the other hand, is that our small self step aside. And sometimes it, we can help that process along by being very skillful in how we ask the small self to step aside because it will never go willingly. Okay? It will never go willingly. So one of the things we do essentially is we give the small self or the ego or the mind, we can use any one of those three terms interchangeably. We give, we give the mind stuff to attach to, to cling to, that kind of uh, take it out on the plank, extending off of the ship, okay? The pirate ship of awakening, essentially. So it's, our we're, uh, the, the ego's kind of, it's, it's lured off that plank until it recognizes, oh, damn it, oh well. Um, and then it turns around, and there are, of course, the image I have here are, you know, uh, uh, salty-looking pirates with eye patches and parrots and blades in their teeth going, keep walking, you know, keel haul, whatever. The ego then has no choice but to jump. And in this jumping, this is kind of what I was alluding to earlier, uh, as, we, as, we, as we jump, as we just kind of fearlessly leave all that's familiar, when we fearlessly endeavor to just allow whatever is to be there and we're going to meet it with our full attention, this is uh, essentially the same thing as jumping off, that, jumping off that plank. The beauty of this is that the ego doesn't die, it doesn't get devoured by sharks, it's that we in fact become oceanic. I'm starting to really like this metaphor the more I talk about it. <laughs> Are. Yeah, exactly. We become more oceanic in our, in our expanse. We include the ego. We include the pirates. We include the ship. We are the ocean that holds all, withstands all, regardless of weather, regardless of the amount of waves. We are always already that core element of water of ocean, of fluidity, of humor. So what I'm going to give to you today is uh, a little description that uh, I, I, ran, I came across on uh, BeliefNet. I was uh, just kind of surfing around and there was this uh, uh, um, description of a very famous 
uh, Zen cartoon from, uh, I guess it's the 8th century, 7th or 8th century. And essentially the cartoon is, these are the 10 steps to awakening, okay? So the, the cartoon was done, I'm going to need actually a helper if I could have somebody uh, that could uh, smear, thanks a lot Barbara, you're a very nice lady. Everybody gets one, oops, including me, I'll take one, okay? And so the cartoons have been uh, done by some very creative contemporary artist and you can find uh, actual wood cuttings of the ox herding picture, pictures if you wish. They're, they're all over the, uh, the internet and so forth. Just Google 10 ox herding pictures, something like that. And this might be a good time if you need them to get your uh, reading glasses because it is kind of small. I apologize for that. Everybody have one? Thanks, Barbara. Okay. So, essentially, this is a descriptor uh, showing us how what steps are taken um, as we, in essence, jump off the plank. Okay. Uh, as we become uh, more and more aware of our situation uh, from uh, deeper and deeper experiential versions of truth. Okay? So, while this gives the ego all sorts of stuff to attach to, and while my nightmare would be if all of you kind of pinned this up against your fridge to map out where you actually are in the entire process of awakening, feel free to go ahead and do that if you wish. Uh, the idea here is to let it in and let it go. Okay? Because Awakening is not a linear process. It just isn't. And anyone that, that tells you it is, I would really question their, their, their practice. I mean, maybe, maybe somebody has experienced it this way, but, but increasingly from, from this position, I watch this unfold in um, uh, ways that, that always amaze me, that where people will like suddenly reach this, this pinnacle experience and then in the next moment drop down into you know, uh, uh, some form of contraction. So, so we kind of are always, at any given point, somewhere on this continuum. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of read through, and then we'll pick it apart real quickly, and then we'll turn this into uh, some q and hope, Hopefully it'll be somewhat edifying. All right, so first of all, I need to explain that the ox, the ox is the symbol of awakening. Okay, it's the metaphor. The ox is, uh, it's, it's called all sorts of different things in the mythology, but the ox essentially is, is awakening. And so first what happens is, in step one, we begin seeking the ox. The herder, meaning the ox herder, first embarking on a spiritual journey is unaware that the true nature of the mind cannot be found by maintaining a dualistic view of the world. The result is confusion and disillusionment. And this is usually what brings each of us into some form of spiritual circle. Every one of us usually ends up uh, doing spiritual work because of some degree of dissatisfaction. Early on in our uh, maturation process, our spiritual maturation process, we think we kind of get it, or we read a great book, and it's like, oh, I just have to follow this map. 
but we start recognizing that it's not the whole story. No matter how deep those books get, ultimately, no matter how deep you know, we, we start looking on our own, it never quite leads us in exactly the right place in a way that can last. We start seeing that things are temporary, and we start getting frustrated, and we start seeing that things are incomplete, and the suffering that spawns uh, or that comes from this spawns our next step. Finding the tracks. Though the ox is not seen or found, the presence of tracks increases the herder's confidence that it exists. The tracks represent phenomena and the erratic nature of the mind. In other words, we start seeing our experience more deeply. We start seeing how our ego starts pounding out uh, uh, tracks on the uh, forest floor or in the snow. We start seeing, you know, kind of, huh, wait, 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 wait. We're leaving traces of ourselves. We're leaving tangles. Okay? We're leaving our karma. And we're starting to recognize it, yet we know that there is something beyond all of this. Haven't seen it. Haven't tasted it, touched it, heard it. But we know it's there. There's an intuition that builds. Quite frankly, this is the way the universe evolves. We start getting in touch with the ever-expanding universe within. Okay? And so in step two, finding the tracks, we start studying our lives a little bit differently. There's a deeper care that kind of goes into our day-to-day, -day, just watching what's going on, recognizing that things aren't right, and knowing that there's another way Okay? And this, of course, leads us to step three. First glimpse of the ox. The path to enlightenment has been glimpsed, but much practice is needed to keep it in full view. Transcendence of the subject and the object is now known by direct experience. Past thought patterns become painfully apparent. This usually occurs then. This first glimpse of the ox usually shows up after we have decided to either get a teacher or we sit with a group or we uh, you know, go through uh, you know, some, some type of training, okay? So uh, for that matter, training can occur right after the first step regardless. At this point, there has been some form of burst, some form of recognition. Maybe it's a Dharma talk that somebody gave and you had something pointed out to you that you never, ever quite had known before, but wow, this is huge. This type of thing starts to occur. Maybe you're sitting on your cushion and you have, you know, just a, uh, what I like to call a big bang experience where you just start recognizing, oh my goodness gracious, the stars without, as Immanuel Kant has said, are equal to the stars within. We start seeing that the I and everything else are actually totally interdependent of each other. They're made up of the same stuff. We start to see that indeed this body that I have, this carbon-based life form, is exactly the same as the plant over in the corner of the room here. The difference is just organization and energy. And it's not just an understanding. It's a knowing. It's an experience. We start, to, we start to see life a little bit differently here in step three. We have our first glimpse of something bigger. We then move to step four, catching the ox. 
At this point, the herder has caught the ox but find, finds it hard to tame. The mind wanders and gets uptight when the seeker does not have expert control over it. Sound familiar? <laughs> you mean, I can't manage enlightenment? No. <laughs> cannot be done. And this is because the ego cannot control the ox. It never will be able to manage and control the ox. The ego is desperate to do so because that allows it to stay in charge. But the ox has a big mind of its own. It has a big mind of its own. It's not going to be managed. Okay? It will support anything that needs to be supported. It will even pull anything that needs to be pulled. But you're never going to be able to, at this stage at least, manage and control it. And this leads to so much frustration because our egos want to get it. Our small cells want to understand. Our minds want to manage, comprehend, manipulate, cajole, negotiate. And the ox will never let us do that. And so there's resistance. The ego starts to get pissed off. And it will resist. Oh yeah, my teacher's a jackass. Or, oh my god, I can't stand those people I was sitting with. Or, I don't like that church. Or, I don't, you know, there are all sorts of ways that we can create rationalizations behind letting the practice go entirely. Little pitfall here on the path, though, is that once we hit this space of catching the ox and we decide to forego any and all types of spiritual work, we deny it altogether, unfortunately, we are conscious enough to really, really hurt but unconscious enough to be able to deal effectively with that suffering. And in this nether space, tremendous suffering just un unfurls itself on us. Okay? If, on the other hand, we have the courage to actually face this resistance that we start noticing, we start facing the frustration, the negativity that we start feeling in relationship to this practice of taming the ox, uh, or excuse me, of catching the ox and trying to tame it, we can hit step five. Advanced practice makes the herder more at ease with his or her true nature. The ox, though still unruly, puts up no resistance to the, uh, to the persevering herder. Consciousness thus goes beyond the ordinary thinking mind. We begin to witness our experience. We actually begin to observe what exactly is going on in this moment. We fall into peace. We don't get peace. We fall into it when we start literally surrendering control. And then guess what? There's cooperation. It's as if the minute we let go, the universe shows up infinitely as an infinitely supportive uh, mechanism. An infinitely supportive force. Awakening begins to avail itself to us and through us just by kind of being present, really present, where we can actually say, bring it. Riding the ox home, step six. The struggle is over. The ox and the herder move in one direction effortlessly, but the illusion of the subject and the object 
still persists. In other words, we're no longer beating ourselves up about how hard it is. It's not a question of it being hard or easy, it just is. We've kind of hit a certain degree of flow, but there's a huge trap here, and you will find actually teachers can stop at this point, really good ones, okay? They can, they can you know, give those Dharma talks that weaken your knees and so forth, but they have not actually gone much further than this place of recognizing, and that people have even, I mean, respected teachers have even said things like this, my enlightenment. My enlightenment. Well, because of my enlightenment or something like that. I mean, I remember hearing a, um, uh, I forget his name. Uh, regardless, talking about his enlightenment. Now, if the enlightenment is his own, he's still in here and everything else is out there, right? Or he is in here riding on the ox. There's still this tiny bit of uh, management, piloting, captaining going on in this experience. Okay? And it's not that that's bad. This is a very natural step, but it still needs to be transcended. We need to move past it on the path in order to get to something even more effulgent, even more indescribably uh, profound. Okay, so when we talk about subject and object, uh, it's, that's like, um, I guess the best way to personalize this is for each of us to think about how we feel selfhood. Now imagine selfhood that feels enlightened. What we have is an enlightened ego. Okay. So we've got to be very careful about that and keep going. That's why we keep practicing, keep practicing even after awakening uh, avails itself to us. We keep going. We're never done. Um, number seven, step seven. Ox forgotten, self alone. On the one hand, beautiful. On the other hand, even more dangerous than the previous step. Okay. The subject and the object now become one. Duality is transcended, but practice continues. The seeker, having learned to let go of everything, no longer has worldly attachments. Here's why this can be more dangerous. On the one hand, it's quite a beautiful experience to be able to really just kind of let go of everything. Let go of everything. Okay? And then to stay there. In other words, to not let go of quite everything. In fact, in step seven, we have let go of everything except letting go. Let me say that one more time. This is a real mind bender, okay? In other words, we give everything up except giving up. Are you hearing me? And so what happens here at this stage, when somebody has surrendered everything except surrender itself, they tend to just, just dissolve into the woodwork. They become uses of oxygen and food, but they don't become participatory. And some traditions stop right here. You are saving the world by going up into the mountain cave and just dying there. 
I and others would argue, I'm sure, that this doesn't serve us in ways that we need to be served in this world, in this time. 21st century awakening needs to incorporate something deeper than this. At least that's where I'm kind of pushing um, this teaching. Uh, regardless of tradition, regardless of tradition, I think that, that these teachings really have uh, an ability to push us actually beyond this, this part. We let go of the letting go. We let go of not letting go. We let go. We begin to become literally like this surfer on this ocean, this oceanic experience. Okay? Let's move on to eight. A really amazing step happens here at step eight because there's nothing left. What happens is with enough practice, we start recognizing that being in our hermitage or whatever, staying away from the world, okay, uh, still implies the slightest contraction. In fact, what we have here, the illusion of reality being separate from the mind is shattered. Enlightenment as an unconditioned state of mind is experienced. The mind has escaped from the trap of opinions and views. Drawing a picture would be a contradiction of no thing. No thingness or emptiness is realized. Not recognized. Realized. And this is a marvelous, marvelous huge thing. Alright? And as confusing as this can be to the mind, it actually is quite simple. I'll read this one line again. I love this. The illusion of reality being separate from the mind is shattered. In other words, it's all mind. Everything is nothing. Nothing is everything. In Zen we say, emptiness is form, and form is emptiness. We begin seeing that it's all one beautiful mix of nothing. Everything at its core is nothing. Things themselves come from no-thingness. And we can rest in that no-thingness. Okay? Now, if this loses you and you're going, why is this even important? That's okay. It's just a map. Number nine, returning to the source. The search for enlightenment has come full circle. The world goes on regardless of what changes have occurred. It is the nature of all phenomena. There is, if you will, a rebirthing of our entire experience. Instead of being a separate self, okay, who is awakened and transcended and let go of all their worldly goods, instead of even going past that, where the separate self is no longer existent, it's all just one big nothingness, suddenly we come to this place, returning to the source, where creativity happens again, where birth actually happens again, but this time it happens consciously. We start to recognize the nature of all phenomena is this divine throbbing creativity. And we participate in it as everything. We start to actually see ourselves through the eyes of others. We begin to see others with compassion, total wisdom, care, love. And then this leads 
rather effortlessly to the next stage, stage 10. Returning to help sentient beings. The enlightened being might be anybody who has renounced the world to help others towards the path. Selfless service becomes the hallmark of wisdom. I think it can be summed up much more easily than selfless service, which I actually think is quite marvelous. Uh, it's an appropriate response. An appropriate step 10 is an appropriate response. It's coming back into the world, awake in this life, coming down the mountain of spirit into the world as an appropriate response to whatever arises. In the traditional uh, description of the uh, of the ox herding pictures, the the uh, the Buddha that comes comes uh, shows up in step ten is um, I can't quite remember the quote exactly how it works, so forgive. I'll para paraphrase. Uh, in ragged clothes, bare-chested, fat, and happy. <laughs> how cool is that? You come back into the world with bliss bestowing hands, just fat and happy, okay with the way the world is, and fully engaged. All right? And that perhaps is the most important part of this entire uh, teaching. We have to be fully engaged. We have to be fully engaged. But to get there, steps need to be taken. Any one of these steps is a marker a potential for any moment. Any moment, someone could be fat and happy and then suddenly realize, oh my God, I'm trying to tame the ox. Okay? And then in that next moment. So this could happen, although, having said that, once we start moving into the, uh, you know, steps 7, 8, 9, 10, that happens with a far less frequency. And being caught by the bull or caught by ourselves becomes something that has really kind of been let go, let go of. All right? So here's to being fat and happy. <laughs>
come come inside, you know, come inside. Just just really study, you know, what is going on inside. I think this is really, really, really cool. What it does is it creates a. I sometimes picture it as like crosshairs, you know, that are, that are or supply and demand curves that are crossing something like that. You know, you have then you have then your internal experience, and then you have your external experience, and where they meet is you. Okay, is what's real in you. It's your Buddhahood. Uh, a Buddha experiences both the in the the uh, the uh, the observation and the participation at once, and so what we do is we practice. Typically, the way this will work is we practice going internal. We practice uncovering an awareness of what's going on, and then apply it to the world. We've been we've been used to applying unconsciousness to the world for years usually, and so you know applying ourselves to the world. That's not such a terribly difficult thing to do. What does seem to be difficult is unlearning all those habitual pieces of inertia that have carried us into those, those, those habits, you know, where our flow doesn't go straight. Instead, it kind of swirls off to the side. Once we start to become aware of that, then we can kind of refinagle and participate. All right? And then if uh, in another moment we, we find that we're not aware, and labs who, by the way, I don't know how evolutionarily speaking they survive because they eat everything. You know, ooh, rat poison, yahoo! You know, I don't know how they've done it, um, but uh, it's 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 becoming it's becoming very aware and and uh, diligent in our awareness. So at first we kind of soften. And then we actually kind of bring that awareness, which is totally just just open into the world, right? And we, but, but with a, with a straight spine, you know, with a, and, and that activity then that comes from that conscious meeting of our experience is always going to be an appropriate response. And it might sound like, don't you dare eat that dog, you know, uh, in, in that case. Uh, in, in another situation, I mean, it might surprise any of us what awakening can sound like. We assume immediately that awakening is all about peace, love, kumbaya, let me give you a hug and everything's fine. Well, that doesn't work if that person wants to kill you. So what's the appropriate response there? You know, and that's why we have, because you could make the argument, kill him. Well, maybe, but that's why we have an ethical code in this practice, a very, very, you know, um, a, a firm one. You know, we don't kill. We become intimate with that vow. And there may be a time to kill. You know? So it's, a, it's, it's always deepening. Always deepening. And our wisdom and compassion that begins to flow once we start hitting, you know, into, let's say, step 10. It's always going to be a non-harmful, non-harmful gift to the world. And I think, actually, uh, with rare exception, I think Tola nails that. Just his being. I think he is—he—he he kind of uh, resonates as a person. He resonates that. Uh, He—he—he's—he's uh, he's plugged into something much bigger. It's quite beautiful. Quite beautiful to see. Yeah. Yeah.
for a long time I felt like I have a refrigerator on my back and if I quit running it's not going to be pretty. It's just going to squash you? Yeah, you mean? And, it, and it's it's almost like it's I've gotten so good at keeping that refrigerator from crushing me that I can step away from it and I'm still holding it up and still running. Yeah. And I don't know how to let go of it. I don't know how to it's like the muscles cramped or something. Yeah. It's like I just how how does one... Yeah, I mean, it's like waiting for something in a... Do I, is it supposed to be willpower? Or is it, I mean, it, okay, well, let me, let, me, let me try to explain. I'm going to try to explain in two ways. The, the first way is really easy. Get it off your back. Drop it. Okay? Now, the how to do that is a little bit trickier, uh, especially when it's, it's habitual. Um, uh, yet the answer is still drop it. Uh, or better yet, let it crush you. See what happens. You know? Uh, because in, then step two, or the other way I would articulate how, how, do, how does one drop it, you become very, very, very aware of what exactly it is that you're carrying. Okay? Without judging what it is that you're carrying without saying, I wish this would go away, without saying, if, if only, you know, or the, you know, those little, those little uh, uh, precursors to uh, self-conversation that, that kind of fire off. Instead of doing that, just be with the discomfort, be with the stress, be with the fear, be with, and if you can fearlessly go into all of those emotions, all of those thoughts, and see that they are nothing other than egoic scripts. You recognize, oh wait a minute, they don't weigh anything. And then you keep going, and you keep going, and you keep going. And you practice with this over and over, allowing it to crush you. Or better yet, allowing it off. Set it down gently. See what it feels like when you're no longer carrying it. Try it first at arm's length see what it feels like, but it becomes an exploratory bit of work as opposed to a panic-driven or fear-driven uh, hustle. Does that kind of make sense? Give it a shot. Just especially, and, and be especially grateful if it really becomes acute. Good, good. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that with love, but, but good. Because when it becomes acute, what's happening is, the, to put this in spiritual parlance, the universe is asking now. It's asking you to let it go. Okay? And so what feels acute is your ego's cramp holding on. I will not let go. You know? If you, I've talked about this before, if you were to take your hand right now, you were to squeeze as hard as you could for 30 seconds, right? And then you let go. Oh my gosh, it's so hard. It's so hard to let go. But you keep believing, yes I can, yes I can, yes I can, yes I can. And trust that so many have gone before us in this work. So many have gone before us. All the Buddhas, as my teacher used to say, all the Buddhas are practicing with you. Every bit of that fear, every tear that comes, every cry, uh, you know, every bit of anguish, every single Buddha has gone through that. 
And so our invitation to Buddhahood, while it's walking through fire, what gets burned away is precisely what we no longer need. We still have to be willing to go through that fire. Go get him, tiger. <laughs> you can do this. You can do this. And that's the, the cool thing about having uh, a sangha. Is a sangha, every one of us has a refrigerator that we're carrying. You know? Yeah. Am I right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh huh. Yes. Misery loves company. So, <laughs> so, to work on the refrigerator, some more. Um, is is during your meditation, like your daily meditation, an appropriate time to look at the refrigerator? If it comes up. But it's not an appropriate time to say, meditation should never, ever be about, all right, I'm meditating. I'm going to think about my refrigerator. You know, it should never do that. Because then it's not meditation. It's thinking. It's rumination. Okay? If, on the other hand, in the stillness process, as we start quieting down, as deep silence begins to kind of resonate, and bloop, there comes the refrigerator. Guess what? Don't run away. Don't grab it. Don't, you know, don't try to pull it apart and look at it. Just be right there. It'll avail, it'll show itself. And all its splendor <laughs> and gore, you know, it'll show itself. All we have to do is not flinch. So the work is not to go after anything. It's not to avoid anything. It's to be there for it. Is to be there for the pain when we set it down or when it crushes us. And then we start to recognize, my gosh, I'm still here. Huh. It starts systematically removing energy or metaphorically removing weight from the refrigerator. Okay? If we can meet it. If, on the other hand, we decide, you know, that we're going to try to, then what ego is managing the process and is merely adding more weight to the refrigerator, more misery, more grip, more ache, more hardship. So in meditation, we just stop. Thank you for coming tonight.